His television advertisements proudly claimed he's tough as Bob Warr. Bob Warr is what you make fences with. This week on Selected Shorts, politics, Texas style. I'm Andy Borowitz, and you're listening to Selected Shorts from PRI, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. In 2011, I edited a volume of humor pieces called The 50 Funniest American Writers. Now, as we all know, trying to rank artists, it's a pretty tricky business. A reporter once asked John Lennon if Ringo was the best drummer in the world. Lennon answered, He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. That said, I picked 50 writers with pieces that I thought were funny, and it turns out a lot of them work really well for selected shorts. Let's begin with a story from the political humorist Molly Ivins. There was no question in my mind that Molly would be in the anthology. She makes the stuff of state and local politics in late 20th century Texas sound fresh and absolutely universal. This is the great Judith Ivey reading... Tough as Bob War and Other Stuff by Molly Ivins. We've just survived another political season largely unscathed. I voted for Bobby Locke for governor. He's the one who challenged Colonel Muammar el Qaddafi to hand to hand combat in the Gulf of Sidra on the line of death at high noon next July 4th. Only one of us will come out of the water alive, said Locke. Locke thinks the trouble with America is that we've lost respect for our leaders, and this would be a good way to restore same. Me too. Besides, you should have seen the other guys. The Republicans had a congressman running who thinks you get AIDS through your feet. That's Representative Tom Luffler of Hunt, who is smarter than a box of rocks. His television advertisements proudly claimed he's tough as Bob Warr. Bob War is what you make fences with. <laughs> and also that in his youth, Luffler played football with two broken wrists. This caused uncharitable persons to question the man's good sense, so he explained he didn't know his wrists were broken at the time. Luffler went to San Francisco during the campaign to make a speech. While there, he wore shower caps on his feet while showering, lest he get AIDS from the tile in the tub. He later denied that he had spent the entire trip in his hotel room. He said, I did walk around the hotel. I did see people who do have abnormal tendencies. I'd just as soon not be associated with abnormal people. If that's true, what was he doing running for governor of Texas? 
Perhaps Loeffler's most enduring contribution to Texas political lore was a thought that seemed to him so profound he took to repeating it at every campaign stop and during televised debates as well. As I have traveled around this state, many people have said to me, Texas will never be Texas again. But I say they are wrong. I say Texas will always be Texas. <laughs> Hard to add anything to that. On the Democratic side, the nerd issue was dominant. The ugly specter of nerditude was raised by A. Don Crowder, a candidate from Dallas. Crowder's platform consisted of vowing to repeal the no-pass, no-play rule on account of it has seriously damaged high school football and is un-American, un-Texan, and probably communist-inspired. <laughs> no pass, no play was part of the education reform package enacted last year by Governor Mark White and the state legislature. If you don't pass all your school subjects, you can't participate in any extracurricular activities, including football. Quite naturally, this has caused considerable resentment and could cost White the governorship. So Adon Crowder holds this press conference in which he says the reason Mark White favors no pass, no play is because White was one of the first nerds in Texas. <laughs> As evidence, Crowder produces White's high school annual, and there it was. The guy was zip in extracurricular activities in his school days. We're talking not even booster club, not glee club, or stage crew, not even the prom poster committee. <laughs> According to Crowder, this explains, quote, the psychological reasoning behind White's dislike of football, unquote. There were headlines all over the state. Governor White called nerd by yearbook-wielding foe. <laughs> nerd charge merits scrutiny. Meanwhile, we tracked down Donnie Crowder's high school annual, and guess what? He was captain of the football team, played baseball, ran track, and was in the French club. <laughs> French club, need I say more? <laughs> Quel fromage. <laughs> White's initial response to this slanderous aspersion was to whine about how tacky it was for Crowder to be so ugly right after the explosion of the Challenger shuttle. Nerd City. 
Then his campaign manager tries to pull it out by saying, so the guy was not real active in high school, but he was super involved in after-school activities at the Baptist church. Nerd. <laughs> Nerd. Finally, White gets his act together, comes out and says, look, I grew up poor. My daddy had an accident when I was just a sophomore, and he couldn't work after that, so I spent my high school years working summers and after school. While A. Don Crowder was in French club, <laughs> doubtlessly conjugating highly irregular verbs, with busty cheerleaders over the pate and Van Rouge. Our governor was out mowing lawns, frying burgers, and pumping gas to help his dear old silver-haired mother. Great stuff. Besides, Bubba never joined no French club. Marco Blanco, as we call him in South Texas, will meet former Governor Bill Clements for a rematch in November. Clements was defeated by White four years ago on account of he's an awful grouch. <laughs> Grumpy versus the nerd. What a matchup. Also contributing to the political festivities of late is that peerless, fearless commie hater, Charlie Wilson of Lufkin. It's possible to get used to Charlie. He has a certain charm. When I called him to verify some of the more bloodthirsty quotations attributed to him in the Houston Post's account of his latest trip to the Afghanistan border, the first thing he said was, the only thing those suckers understand is hot lead and cold steel. <laughs> I was especially pleased that he took his lady friend, Annalisa Ilshenko, a former Miss World USA, along on the Afghan jaunt. According to the Houston Post, she is a dark-haired and slow-eyed beauty and you hardly ever find a good case of slow-eyed beauty in the newspapers anymore. <laughs> the Post said she went everywhere with Wilson, not even flinching as she sank her high-heeled white leather boots into the thick brown ooze of Dara's main street. No sacrifice is too great when you're fighting for freedom. <laughs> Charlie told the Post reporter he went over there hoping to kill Russians as painfully as possible. Myself, I think it had more to do with an observation he made after he got back. Hell, they're still lining up to see Rambo in Lufkin. Patriotism is always in good smell in East Texas. The night El Presidente started bombing Libya, the DJ at Benny B's, a honky-tonk in Lufkin, made all the patrons stand on their chairs and sing the Star Spangled Banner. He said, if anybody refused to do it, we'll know you're a commie faggot. <laughs> 
Of course, they do the same thing at Benny B's for David Allen Coe's song, You Never Even Call Me By My Name. Living in East Texas can be a real challenge. Living anywhere in Texas is getting to be a challenge as the price of oil slides gracefully towards single digits. Texas bashing seems to be a popular new national pastime. Let them rot in the sun, said a cordial headline in the New Republic. Some northern papers ran stories on our oil woes with heads the likes of, sorry about that, J.R. <laughs> I don't see that we've got any cause to whine about this vein of snottiness. Some of the Bubbas did put bumper stickers on their pickups a few years back that said, let the Yankee bastards freeze in the dark. Somehow, I forebode that Yankees going and doing likewise is not going to teach Bubba any manners. The rest of us down here been having poor luck at it for a long time. I would point out, though, that Texas is not a rich state, never has been. Never even made it up to the national average in per capita income until the tail end of the oil boom. And then we slid right down again. Poverty level here is always among the nation's highest. And according to a recent study by a team from Harvard University, Texas has more counties beset by hunger and malnutrition than any other state. Our second biggest industry, after oil, is agriculture. And you've maybe read something about how it's going for farmers these days. Citrus crop in the Rio Grande Valley was wiped out by a freeze three years ago. Now they got drought and 40% unemployment. And the peso is still going down. Our banks had their money in oil agriculture, and Mexico. We're losing a lot of banks. There is no social support system for the poor in Texas. Adults get nothing. Children get $57.50 a month. Bubba's got a beer gut. He can let shrink some and not be hurting. But almost half the children in this state are black or brown and they have no cushion. If Eddie Chillis goes broke, it's don't cry for me, Texarkana. John Conley and Ben Barnes on hard times, search me for sympathy. And I could give a shit about JR, but that's not who's hurting. Good thing we still got politics in Texas, finest form of free entertainment, ever invented. <laughs>
As most New Yorkers have done, I have given serious and generous thought to the state of my apartment should I get killed during the day. (laughs) Say, someone pushes me onto the subway tracks, or I get accidentally blown up. Or a woman with a headset and a baby carriage wields over my big toe, backing me into some scaffolding, which shakes loose a lead pipe which lands on my skull. What then? After the ambulance, the hospital, the funeral, the trays of cheese cubes on foil toothpicks. Back in the apartment, I never should have left. The bed has gone unmade and the dishes unwashed. The day I get shot in a bodega buying cigarettes, naturally. will in all likelihood be the day before Laundry Sunday and the day after I decided to clean out my closet, got bored halfway through, and opted to watch sitcoms in my prom dress instead. (laughs) I have pictured my loved ones coming to my apartment to collect my things, and I have hoped that it would only be lived-in, messy, bras drying on the shower curtain rod, muddy sneakers by the door, but that is never going to happen. My dust balls alone have a manifest destiny that drives them far beyond the ruffle of the same name. <laughs> I like to think that these hypothetical loved ones would persist in their devotion to dead me no matter what. They would literally be blinded by grief, too upset putting sweaters in boxes to notice that I hadn't dry cleaned them in a year. <laughs> that is until one of them made his or her way into the kitchen. Where are you going? My father would ask. Packing up her bedroom's much too painful, my mother would tell him, choking back the tears. I'm going to start on the kitchen. (laughs) This is the part I dread. This is the part where my mother would open the drawer beneath my sink only to discover my stash of plastic toy ponies. There are about seven of them in there. Correction. One's a Pegasus, blue, with ice skates. The rest vary in size, texture, and realism. Some are covered in brown felt. Some have rhinestone eyes. Some come with their own grooming brushes. Others with the price sticker still on their haunches. If they arrived in plastic and cardboard packaging, they remain unopened as if they will appreciate like Star Wars figurines. Perhaps they're not the dirtiest of dirty secrets, but they're about as high as one can get on the oddity scale without a ringer like toenail clippings. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how the ponies happened, though I have an inkling. Can I get you anything? I'll say, getting up from a dinner table. Coffee? Tea? A pony? (laughs) People rarely laugh at this, especially if they've heard it before. This party's supposed to be fun, a friend will say. Really? I'll respond. Will there be pony rights? It's a nervous tick and a cheap joke, cheapened further by the frequency with which I use it. For that same reason, it's hard to weed out of my speech. Most of the time, I don't even realize I'm saying it. There are little elements in a person's life, minor fibers that become unintentionally tangled with our personality. Sometimes it's a patent phrase, sometimes it's a perfume, sometimes it's a wristwatch. For me, it's the constant referencing of ponies. I don't even like ponies. If if I made one of my throwaway equine requests and someone produced an actual pony, Juan Valdez style, I would run very fast in the other direction. During a few summers at camp, I rode a chronically dehydrated pony named Brandy who would jolt down without notice and lick the grass outside the corral and I would careen forward, my helmet tipping to cover my eyes. 
I do, however, like ponies in the abstract. Who doesn't? It's like those movies with animated insects. Sure, the baby cockroach seems cute with the CGI eyelashes, but how would you feel about 50 of her real-life counterparts living in your oven? And that's precisely the manner in which the ponies clomp their way into my regular speech, abstractly. I have something for you. A guy will say on our first date, is it a pony? (laughs) No. It's usually a movie ticket or a cell phone number or a slobbery tongue kiss. But on our second date, if I ask again, I'm pretty sure I'm getting a pony. And thus the pony drawer came to be. It's uncomfortable to admit, but almost every guy I have ever dated has unwittingly made a contribution to the stable. (laughs) The retro pony from the 50s was from the most thoughtful guy I have ever known. The one with the glitter horseshoes was from a boy who would later turn out to be gay. The one with the rainbow haunches was from a pot dealer. And the one with the price tag stuck on the back was given to me by a narcissist who was so impressed with his gift that he forgot to remove the sticker. Each one of them marks the beginning of a relationship. I don't mean to hint. It's not a hint. It's a flat-out demand. I want a pony. I think what happens is that young relationships are eager to build up a romantic repertoire of private jokes, especially in the city where there's not always a great how-we-met story behind every great love affair. People meet at bars, through mutual friends, on dating sites, or because they work in the same industry. Just once, a guy asked me out between two express stops on the end train. We were holding the same pole, and he said, I know this sounds crazy, but would you like to go to a very public place and have a drink with me? I looked into his seemingly non-psycho-killing, rent-paying, Sunday-time, subscribing eyes and said, yes. Yes, I would. He never bought me a pony, but he didn't have to. If I subtract the overarching strangeness of being a grown woman with a toy collection, I like to think of the ponies as a tribute to my type. I date people for whom it would occur to them to do this. This is not such a bad thing. These are men who are creative and kind. They hold open doors and pour wine. If I joined a cult, I like to think they would come rescue me. (laughs) No, the fulfilling of the request isn't the problem. It's the requesting that's off. They don't know yet that I make it all the time, and I don't have the heart to tell them how whorish I am with my asking. For them, it's a deleted scene out of Goodwill Hunting. For me, it's Groundhog Day. (laughs) They have no reason to believe they're being unoriginal, probably because they're not. I am. What am I asking when I ask for a pony but to be taken for more unique than I probably am? The ponies, if by accident, have come to represent the most overly sentimental part of my life because all of these relationships have ended, and they have ended more or less badly. No affair that begins with such an orchestrated overture can end on a simple note. What I am left with is the relics of those relationships. After a breakup, I'll conduct the normal breakup rituals. I'll cut up photographs, erase voicemails, gather his dark concert t-shirts I once slept in and douse them with bleach before I use them to clean my bathtub. (laughs) 
but not the ponies. When I go to throw them away, I feel like a mother about to slap her child for the first time to cross a line she never intended to cross. She's spitting mad, the arm flies up, and it never comes down. Yet I feel a pressure to do something with the ponies. Statistically speaking, my chances of getting smacked on the head with a lead pipe are increasing every time I lock the door behind me. Also, a drawer full of beady-eyed toys is insanely creepy. But what to do? Actual love letters, I do in stages. I biannually clean out drawers of nonsensical items. Receipts, loose AA batteries, rubber bands of indeterminate origin, and stumble across a love letter. Unable to throw it out, I stick it in another drawer, crammed at the bottom until I clean that one out too, and finally throw the letter out. One romantic note generally goes through a minimum of three locales before it gets tossed out for good. But the ponies are uncrammable. They're three-dimensional and bubblegum-scented and impossible to hide, even from myself. Every time I open the drawer, it's a trip down memory lane, which, if you don't turn off at the right exit, merges straight into the masochistic nostalgia highway. <laughs> they are too embarrassing to leave out in the open, facing west like a collection of China elephants. They're too many to slide under the sofa. They are too plastic to wedge behind the radiator. I want to send them around the world like the Travelocity gnome. <laughs> have them come back to me years from now when I have an attic in which to shut them away, as if this all weren't enough. There is that flash of my mother dressed in black, staring aghast into the open kitchen drawer in a city that provides so many strange options to be immortalized by the local tabloids. It's just as important to avoid humiliation in death as it is in life. What is it? My father would shout, imagining all the things you'd never like to think of your father imagining. Flavored condoms, pregnancy tests, a complete set of the Third Reich collector's cards. <laughs> Look! My mother would howl, picking up ranch princess pony with matching bridle and real horseshoe charm necklace by her faux flaxen mane just before she passed out. <laughs> My first thought is to go to the Salvation Army and donate the ponies to the children. But the notion turns me into an insta-hippie. The ponies have bad karma. I wouldn't just be giving some kid stargazer with the glow-in-the-dark mane. I would be giving her manic depressive Simon, <laughs> who talked back to billboards and infomercials and kicked me in his sleep. My next idea is to leave the ponies in the trash for a homeless person to find and sell on the street but I can't risk seeing them on a table with used books and polyester scarves as I walk to the subway each morning. I think about burying them in the park, but I have my doubts about the pony's biodegradability. I think about burning them, melting them into a puddle of plastic as their real-life counterparts were once melted for glue. Maybe I'll just sneak out to the reservoir after dark with a raft made from pool noodles and rubber bands and give them a Viking funeral. <laughs> while each subsequent idea is tilled from a progressively more unsophisticated plot. I know that I can't simply throw the ponies out with the recycling. The ponies have their roots in me, not the other person. They are my nervous habit, my odd little secret. While each serves as a memory of a specific individual, each memory is filtered through the same brain, mine, the ponies are part of me. They deserve better than that. The keeping of love letters suddenly seems like a petty crime. I have the romantic equivalent of a body in the freezer. <laughs> so 
I put the ponies in a black plastic bag, grabbing them out of their drawer like a jewel thief who, for the sake of urgency, does not consider the preciousness of each object. I tie the bag in a knot, leave the apartment, and take them with me on the subway. I get in a sparsely populated car, drop them between my legs, and begin casually pushing them further under the seat with my heels. Then, just as casually, I forget to take them with me when I get up. I leave them there on the end train, bound for Brooklyn. <laughs> of course, the second the door shut, I realize what I've done. Actually, that's not true. The second the door shut, I feel great. Sneaky and great and nostalgia-free. Second after that, I realize what I've done. In my effort to liberate myself from the ponies, I have given some poor girl at the end of the subway car a solid reason to think she might not make it back to her apartment that night. A suspiciously abandoned, unmarked package on public transport. I wonder what must be racing through her mind as she sits motionless, unable to turn her gaze away from the lumpy plastic bag. I wonder if she flashes back to her apartment, to the dust, to the expired yogurt in the fridge, to the terrible DVDs that she won't be able to explain were a gift. <laughs> Perhaps she has her own holy grail of humiliation. Perhaps there's a collection of porcelain bunnies in the medicine cabinet. In any case, ponies are gone. They're on their way to a burrow where eventually they will hit the end of the line and cycle back into the heart of the city, unless the bomb squad finds them first. <laughs> They're finally out of my sight, and not even an 8.5 on the nostalgia Richter scale can summon them back. I created them, and now I have uncreated them, and there is nothing I can do about it. Except maybe to continue to look both ways before crossing the street and avoid areas with a high saturation of random violence. I breathe a sigh of resolute relief. From now on, I will make a conscious effort to remember. Should I find myself face-to-face -face or pipe-to-skull with the end of my life? that the real proof that I have tried to love and that people have tried to love me back was never going to fit in a kitchen drawer. Thank you. That was Kirsten Vangsness reading Sloane Crossley's The Pony Problem. I'm Andy Borowitz. I love the pony problem. I really thought it just captured Sloane Crossley's uh, perspective and her voice so well. But then to hear Kirsten read it, it just did take it to a whole new level. After a short break, dinner with Ian Fraser and dancing with Dorothy Parker. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. From PRI Public Radio International. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Andy Borowitz. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to SelectedShorts.org. And please, write and tell us what you think of today's program. For this show, we're listening to stories that were featured in my book, The 50 Funniest American Writers. Of course, it included a number of the usual suspects, Mark Twain, James Thurber, Nora Ephron, 
And no way was I going to forget Dorothy Parker. The feminine force of the Algonquin Round Table, Parker was the definition of cultivated wit in the early 20th century. There's a thin line between comedy and tragedy, and in Parker's writing, it's often invisible. This is the one and only Parker Posey reading Dorothy Parker's The Waltz. Why, thank you so much. I'd adore to. I don't want to dance with him. I don't want to dance with anybody. And even if I did, it wouldn't be him. He'd be well down among the last ten. I've seen the way he dances. It looks like something you do on St. Walburgus night. Just think, not a quarter of an hour ago, here I was sitting, feeling sorry for the poor girl he was dancing with, and now I'm going to be the poor girl. Well, well, isn't it a small world? And a peach of a world, too. A true little corker. Its events are so fascinatingly unpredictable, are not they? And here I was, minding my own business, not doing a stitch of harm to any living soul. And then he comes into my life, all smiles and city manners, to sue me for the favor of one memorable mazurka. <laughs> Why, he scarcely knows my name, let alone what it stands for. It stands for despair, bewilderment, futility, degradation, and premeditated murder. <laughs> but little does he what? I don't what his name either. I haven't any idea what it is. Jukes would be my guess from the look in his eyes. How do you do, Mr. Jukes? And how is that dear little brother of yours with the two heads? Ah, <laughs> uh, now why did he have to come around me with his low requests? Why can he let me lead my own life? I ask so little, just to be left alone in my quiet corner of the table to do my evening brooding over all my sorrows. And he must come with his bows and his scrapes, and may I have this one's. And I had to go and tell him that I'd adore to dance with him. I cannot understand why I wasn't struck right down dead. Yes, and being struck dead would look like a day in the country compared to struggling out a dance with this boy. But what could I do? Everyone else at the table had got up to dance except him and me. There was I, trapped. Trapped like a trap in a trap. <laughs> what can you say when a man asks you to dance with him? I most certainly will not dance with you. I'll see you in hell first. <laughs> Why, thank you. I'd like to awfully, but I'm having labor pains. Oh, yes, do let's dance together. It's so nice to meet a man who isn't a scaredy cat about catching my berry-berry. No, there was nothing for me to do but say I'd adore to. Well, we might as well get it over with. All right, cannonball, let's run out on the field. You won the toss, you can lead. Why, I think it's more of a waltz, really, isn't it? We might just listen to the music a second, shall we? Oh, yes, it's a waltz. Mind? Why, I'm simply thrilled. I'd love to waltz with you. I'd love to waltz with you. I'd love to waltz with you. I'd love to have my tonsils out. I'd love to be in a midnight fire at sea. Well, it's too late now. We're getting underway. Oh, 
Oh, dear, dear, dear. Oh, this is even worse than I thought it would be. I suppose that's one dependable law of life. Everything is always worse than you thought it was going to be. Oh, if I had any real grasp of what this dance would be like, I'd have held out for sitting it out. Well, it will probably amount to the same thing in the end. We'll be sitting it out on the floor in a minute if he keeps this up. I'm so glad I brought it to his attention that this is a waltz they're playing. Heaven knows what might have happened if he thought it was something fast. We'd have blown the sides right out of this building. Why does he always want to be somewhere that he isn't? Why can't we stay in one place just long enough to get acclimated? It's this constant rush, rush, rush. That's the curse of American life. That's the reason we're all of us so, ow, for God's sake, don't kick, you idiot. This is only second down. Oh, my shin, my poor, poor shin that I've had ever since I was a little girl. Oh, no, no, no. Goodness, no. It didn't hurt the least little bit. And anyway, it was my fault. Really. It was. Truly. Well, you're just being sweet to say that. It it really was all my fault. I wonder what I'd better do. Kill him this instant with my naked hands or wait and let him drop in his traces. Maybe it's best not to make a scene. I guess I'll just lie low and watch the pace get him. He can't keep this up indefinitely. He's only flesh and blood. Die he must and die he shall for what he did to me. I don't want to be the oversensitive type, but you can't tell me that kick was unpremeditated. (laughs) Freud says there are no accidents. I've led no cloistered life. I've known dancing partners who have spoiled my slippers and torn my dress. But when it comes to kicking, I am outraged womanhood. When you kick me in the shin, smile. (laughs) Maybe he didn't do it maliciously. Maybe it's just his way of showing his high spirits. I suppose I ought to be glad that one of us is having such a good time. I suppose I ought to think myself lucky if he brings me back alive. Maybe it's captious to demand of a practically strange man that he leave your shins as he found them. After all, the poor boy is doing the best he can. Probably he grew up in the hill country and never had no larnin'. I bet they had to throw him on his back to get shoes on him. Yes, it's lovely, isn't it? It's simply lovely. It's the loveliest waltz, isn't it? Oh, I think it's lovely, too. Why, I'm getting positively drawn to the triple threat here. He's my hero. He has the heart of a lion and the sinews of a buffalo. Look at him. Never a thought of the consequences. Never afraid of his face. Hurling himself into every scrimmage, eyes shining, cheeks ablaze. And shall it be said that I hung back? No. A thousand times no. What's it to me if I have to spend the next couple of years in a plaster cast? Come on, Butch, right through them. Who wants to live forever? Oh, oh dear. Oh, he's all right, thank goodness. (laughs) For a while, I thought they'd have to carry him off the field. I couldn't bear anything to happen to him. I love him. I love him better than anybody in the world. Oh, look at the spirit he gets into a dreary, commonplace waltz. How effete the other dancers seem beside him. He is youth and vigor. He's courage. He is strength and gaiety and ow. 
Get off my instep, you hulking peasant. What do you think I am anyway, a gangplank? Ow! No, of course it didn't hurt. Why, it didn't a bit, honestly. And it was, it was all my fault. You see, that little step of yours, well, it's perfectly lovely, but it's just a tiny bit tricky to follow at first. Oh, did you work it up yourself? You really did? Well, aren't you amazing? Oh, now I think I've got it. Oh, I think it's lovely. I, I was watching you do it when you were dancing before. It's awfully effective when you look at it. It's awfully effective when you look at it. I bet I'm awfully effective when you look at me. My hair is hanging along my cheeks. My skirt is swaddled about me. I can feel the cold damp of my brow. I must look like something out of the fall of the House of Usher. <laughs> this sort of thing takes a fearful toll of a woman my age. And he worked up this little step himself, he with his degenerate cunning. And it was just a tiny bit tricky at first, but now I think I've got it. Two stumbles, slip, and a 20-yard dash. Yes, I've got it. I've got several other things, too including a split shin and a bitter heart. I hate this creature I'm chained to. I hated him the moment I saw his bestial, leering face. And here I've been locked in his noxious embrace for the 35 years this waltz has lasted. Is that orchestra never going to stop playing, or must this obscene travesty of a dance go on until hell burns out? Oh, They're going to play another encore. Oh, goody. Oh, that's lovely. Tired? I should say I'm not tired. I like to go on like this forever. I should say I'm not tired. I'm dead, that's all I am. Dead, and in what a cause. And the music is never going to stop playing. And we're going on like this, double-time Charlie and I, throughout eternity. I suppose I won't care anymore after the first 100,000 years. I suppose nothing will matter then, not heat, nor pain, nor broken heart, nor cruel, aching weariness. Well, it can't come too soon for me. I wonder why I didn't tell him I was tired. I wonder why I didn't suggest going back to the table. I could have said, let's just listen to the music. Yes, and if he would, that would be the first bit of attention he has given it all evening. George G. Nathan said that the lovely rhythms of the waltz should be listened to in stillness and not be accompanied by strange gyrations of the human body. I think that's what he said. I think it was George G. Nathan. Anyhow, whatever he said and whoever he was and whatever he's doing now, he's better off than I am. That's safe. Anybody who isn't waltzing with this Mrs. O'Leary's cow I've got here is having a good time. Still, if we were back at the table, I'd probably have to talk to him. Look at him. What could you say to a thing like that? Did you go to the circus this year? What's your favorite kind of ice cream? How do you spell cat? I guess I'm well off here, as well off as if I were in a cement mixer in full action. I'm past all feeling now. The only way I can tell when he steps on me is that I can hear the splintering of bones. And all the events of my life are passing before my eyes. There was a time I was in a hurricane in the West Indies. There was the day I got my head cut open and the taxi smashed. 
There was a night the drunken lady threw a bronze ashtray at her own true love and got me instead. There was that summer that the sailboat kept capsizing. Ah, what an easy, peaceful time was mine until I fell in with Swifty here. I didn't know what trouble was before I got drawn into this dance macabre. I think my mind is beginning to wonder. It almost seems to me as if the orchestra were stopping. It couldn't be, of course. It could never, never be. And yet, in my ears, there is a silence like the sound of angel voices. Oh, they've stopped the mean things. They're not going to play anymore. Oh, darn. Oh, do you think they would? Do you really think so if you gave them $20? (laughs) Oh, that would be lovely. And look, do tell them to play this same thing. I'd simply adore to go and waltzing. That was Parker Posey performing Dorothy Parker's The Waltz. Last but not least, we've got a short piece from Ian Frazier. Frazier is a longtime New Yorker writer, and he's written books including Coyote vs. Acme and Travels in Siberia. He's from my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, and long before I wrote for The New Yorker, I was a huge fan of his humor writing for the magazine. In my opinion, no one has written funnier pieces for The New Yorker than he has. Here is Selected Short's late host and founder, Isaiah Sheffer, reading Ian Frazier's Lamentations of the Father. Of the beasts of the field, and of the fishes of the sea, and of all foods that are acceptable in my sight, you may eat, but not in the living room. (laughs) Of the hoofed animals, broiled or ground into burgers, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cloven hoofed animal, plain or with cheese, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cereal grains, of the corn, and of the wheat, and of the oats, and of all the cereals that are of bright color and unknown provenance, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the quiescently frozen dessert, and of all frozen after-meal treats, you may eat, but absolutely not in the living room. Of the juices and other beverages, yes, even of those in sippy cups, you may drink but not in the living room. Neither may you carry such therein. Indeed, when you reach the place where the living room carpet begins, of any food or beverage there you may not eat, neither may you drink. But if you are sick and are lying down and watching something, then may you eat in the living room. And if you are seated in your high chair or in a chair such as a greater person might use, keep your legs and feet below you as they were. Neither raise up your knees nor place your feet upon the table, for that is an abomination unto me. Yes, even when you have an interesting bandage to show, your feet upon the table are an abomination and worthy of rebuke. Drink your milk as it is given you. Neither use on it any utensils, nor fork, nor knife, nor spoon, for that is not what they are for. If you will dip your blocks in the milk and lick it off, you will be sent away. 
when you have drunk, let the empty cup then remain upon the table, and do not bite it upon its edge, and by your teeth hold it to your face in order to make noises in it sounding like a duck, for you will be sent away. When you chew your food, keep your mouth closed until you have swallowed, and do not open it to show your brother or your sister what is within. I say to you, do not so, even if your brother or your sister has done the same to you. Eat your food only. Do not eat that which is not food. Neither seize the table between your jaws, nor use the raiment of the table to wipe your lips. I say again to you, do not touch it, but leave it as it is. And though your stick of carrot does indeed resemble a marker, draw not with it upon the table, even in pretend, for we do not do that, that is why. And though the pieces of broccoli are very like small trees, do not stand them upright to make a forest, because we do not do that. That is why. Sit just as I have told you, and do not lean to one side or the other, nor slide down until you are nearly slid away. Heed me, for if you sit like that, your hair will go into the syrup. And now, behold, even as I have said, it has come to pass. <laughs> Laws pertaining to dessert. For we judge between the plate that is unclean and the plate that is clean, saying first, if the plate is clean, then you shall have dessert. But of the unclean plate, the laws are these. If you have eaten most of your meat and two bites of your peas, with each bite consisting of not less than three peas each, or in total six peas, eaten where I can see, and you have also eaten enough of your potatoes to fill two forks, both forkfuls eaten where I can see, then you shall have dessert. But if you eat a lesser number of peas, and yet you eat the potatoes, still you shall not have dessert. And if you eat the peas, yet leave the potatoes uneaten, you shall not have dessert, no, not even a small portion thereof. And if you try to deceive by moving the potatoes or peas around with a fork, that it may appear you have eaten what you have not, you will fall into iniquity. And I will know, and you shall have no dessert. On screaming, do not scream. For it is as if you scream all the time. If you are given a plate on which two foods you do not wish to touch each other are touching each other, your voice rises up even to the ceiling while you point to the offense with the finger of your right hand. But I say to you, scream not. Only remonstrate gently with the server that the server may correct the fault. Likewise, if you receive a portion of fish from which every piece of herbal seasoning has not been scraped off, and the herbal seasoning is loathsome to you and steeped in vileness, again, I say, refrain from screaming. 
though the vileness overwhelm you and cause you a faint unto death, make not that sound from within your throat, neither cover your face nor press your fingers to your nose. Even now I have made the fish as it should be. Behold, I eat of it myself, yet do not die. Concerning face and hands, cast your countenance upward to the light and lift your eyes to the hills that I may more easily wash you off. For the stains are upon you, even to the very back of your head. There is rice thereon. And in the breast pocket of your garment and upon the tie of your shoe, rice and other fragments are distributed in a manner wonderful to see. Only hold yourself still. Hold still, I say. Give each finger in its turn for my examination thereof and also each thumb. Lo, how iniquitous they appear. What I do is as it must be and you shall not go hence until I have done. Various other laws, statutes, and ordinances. Bite not, lest you be cast into quiet time. Neither drink of your own bathwater, nor of bathwater of any kind, nor rub your feet on bread, even if it be in the package, nor rub yourself against cars, nor against any building, nor eat sand. Leave the cat alone. For what has the cat done that you should so afflict it with tape? And hum not that humming in your nose as I read, nor stand between the light and the book. Indeed, you will drive me to madness. Nor forget what I said about the tape. Complaints and lamentations. Oh, my children, you are disobedient. For when I tell you what you must do, you argue and dispute hotly, even to the littlest detail. And when I do not accede, you cry out and hit and kick, yes, and even sometimes do you spit and shout, stupid head, <laughs> and other blasphemies, and hit and kick the wall and the molding thereof when you are sent to the corner. And though the law teaches that no one shall be sent to the corner for more minutes than he has years of age, yet I would leave you there all day, so mighty am I in my anger. But upon being sent to the corner, you ask straight away, can I come out? And I reply, no, you may not come out. And again you ask, and again I give the same reply. But when you ask again a third time, then you may come out. Hear me, O oh my children, for the bills they kill me. I pay and pay again, even to the twelfth time in a year, and yet again they mount higher than before. For our health, that we may be covered, I give 620 talents twelve times in a year. But even this covers not the 1,500 deductible for each member of the family within a calendar year. 
And yet for ordinary visits we still are not covered, nor for many medicines, nor for the teeth within our mouths. Guess not at what rage is in my mind, for surely you cannot know. For I will come to you at the first of the month, and at the fifteenth of the month with the bills, and a great whining and moan. And when the month of taxes comes, I will decry the wrong and unfairness of it, will mourn with wine and ashtrays, and rend my receipts. And you shall remember that I am that I am, before, after, and until you are (laughs) twenty-one. Hear me then, and avoid me in my wrath, O children of me. That was Isaiah Sheffer performing Lamentations of the Father. One thing I've noticed in in collecting humor pieces and then hearing them read aloud is that what's funny on the page sometimes doesn't translate in performance. And, And that piece is one of the rare exceptions where it's hilarious on the page and it just absolutely kills when somebody reads it aloud. I'm Andy Borowitz. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings were recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deardorff Peterson Group. Support for Selected Shorts is provided by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the Short Story, the Seedlings Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, and the Axe Houghton Foundation. Additional support is provided by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publishers of the Best American Short Stories, edited in 2017 by Meg Wolitzer. Selected Shorts is also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, The program is also made possible by the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Zavars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zavars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zavars.com slash shorts. Additional support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space and is distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.